Hey folks, welcome back to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream Q&A segment of the 186th uh, podcast that uh, we have done live. <laughs> Man, we are on <laughs> Smolder today. We are on Smolder. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's let's just get to it. Something is going on in Hawaii. I oh. got wind of that during the break. Yeah, Hawaii is, is was, on but... fire. Like people are jumping into the ocean to evade wildfires. I really? Think. Yeah, um, that's about as informed as I am. Right. Uh, I don't know. I don't know which island, um, but no, it doesn't sound good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna start with Discord question. They actually sent two this week. A tie. So if we have time, we'll circle back and pick up their second one at the very end here. All right, um, but we're gonna keep this to an hour today. First question from the Discord server this week. What is a good way to introduce friends and family to the idea of bucking conventional medical wisdom, such as using a fever reducer for mild fevers, in favor of a more evolutionary approach? Um, I, th I think I read that question as like, what would you say, as opposed to what would you hand them to read? Um, if it's the what would you hand them to read, uh, I, would th I would suggest um, either uh, why we get sick, uh, by Nessie and Williams, published in the early 90s and still the best introduction to Darwinian medicine that's out there. Uh, and of course, our book, where we spend a chapter or two on um, health and wellness and, and medicine and taking an evolutionary approach to same. So Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, which is a much bigger question than that, or Why We Get Sick, uh, which goes through... Um, a careful analysis of different kinds of diseases and what different kinds of evolutionary logic you might want to engage in um, for um, diseases and conditions um, for each of them. And they, of course, talk about fever because it was one of the earliest, earliest examples of uh, evolutionary thinking becoming somewhat mainstream. And I guess I'm, I guess I'm surprised and disheartened that it is still so little known in so many places. The, the idea that, um, there's no cost to decreasing your fever. It's like, well, what, what do you think fever is? Like somehow, somehow we've almost all of us have been sold this bill of goods that our bodies are terrible and that they have no ability to heal themselves and that we are just in, incredibly sick and incompetent beings all the time at all moments. And what we need is pharmaceutical or other medical intervention, uh, no matter what. And, in part, that story sells um, because uh, it is sold in tandem with um, until like yesterday, practically, people didn't live past 30 and everyone was ugly and they had terrible teeth and they, and you know, like that's, those are lies. Yeah. Those are just lies. And the first part of that is a misunderstanding of demographic reality, uh, which is that until modernity, um, a large proportion of babies born didn't make it past the year of one, the age of one. And so if you include um, babies who die before the year of one in your average life expectancy, you get a much lower life expectancy than we have now. And we have, of course, increased somewhat um, our expected um, our expected age um, that we live to, but not by nearly as much as people say. And with, um, uh, hold on, with regard to uh, the sort of, and we were a mess, and um, you know, all of the modern interventions are helping us. Well, just looking at teeth alone, we know that actually um, the ugliness in our faces and in our teeth—that's a modern condition, not an ancient one. We've done that to ourselves 
um, with the help of modernity rather than modernity helping us um, uh, become more beautiful. It's, it's almost quite the opposite. You're 100% right that the, the death of newborns brought the average way down, which created the false impression that people didn't live past 35, which was nonsense from the get-go. We have solved a large fraction of the infant mortality problem. But it is also true that the average longevity, even if you exclude newborns, has gone way up. What hasn't budged at all is the maximum longevity. Mm -hmm. And so anyway. But, you know, way up is, um, you know, a decade or two. It's not half a life's lifetime. Yeah, but it's still, it's a remarkable achievement. And, mm -hmm. and it's important to highlight it because the utopians who want to pretend that there's some way that we're going to live to a thousand, they are robbing the program that has demonstrated such a amazing capacity to actually extend average lifespan. You know, you want to gamble on living to a thousand and forego gains at remaining younger, longer, and getting to a larger fraction of the 120 years that a person might live. Mm -hmm. That's, it's a nonsense trade. So I find it uh, frustrating. The way to get people to embrace this. Yes, those are good books. Need a story. Right, sure. you need a compelling narrative, and what narrative is complete without a slogan, which we've got? Fuck this pharmaceutical shit. That's the slogan. That's my proposal. Yeah, you're not very good at this. No, I'm not very good at this. Um, well, I think it's a good slogan, but I don't yeah, have the. You're uh, actually excellent at this, but that's that's obviously not the way in. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that, that, that is not going to convince people who are sold on mild pharmaceutical interventions for mild problems, right? Like this, this, that's, that comes across as um, antagonistic and unnecessarily uh, you know, skeptical of all the good that has been done in all of this. So it's like exactly the wrong way. In. So I would dichotomize the problem into two things. Yeah. And you've addressed them, but I, I think they need to be separated. There are two reasons that we have to intervene in some way. And one of them has to do with a exquisitely well-designed organism that we have disrupted with hypernovelty. That is the major reason that we are sick. And the other thing that we are neglecting is how good the body is at restoring its capacity if disrupted, if you take away the disruptions rather than pile on more disruptions in the form of pharmaceuticals that then have their own side effects and you get a cascading dysfunction. The later the disruption happened, the more likely you are to be able to undo it by taking away the, the toxin or the effect, right? Because of things like organizational versus activational effects. Like if, you know, if, if, if you were eating garbage um, from the get-go uh, and became obese as a result, it is going to be much harder to get to a fully regulated and um, healthy system as an adult. Right. And let us look at the root problem, which is the noise created by the rate of change and the amount of simultaneous change makes it impossible to logically return yourself to health by excluding the thing which triggered the pathology because you can't tell because you changed a hundred things at once. You went from a diet that was scheduled that had all of the components that your ancestors were eating and it had a particular cycle through the year and that thing repeated every year. And then if you added something new that had a bad effect, 
it was the only new thing you could detect. Ah, that new thing that we're eating has this consequence. When you're changing dozens of things at once, you're eating from every cuisine all over the world. You've got all the different industrial processes that foods are produced by being mixed so that you can't parse what's on the ingredient label, what it even means, how long ago it was produced. Right. The point no, is, I mean, hence the elimination diet as as a tool of modern medicine as a legitimate tool. It, like it wouldn't, it would have been an obvious and easy thing to do in eras past. And now it's like, no, you actually got to you know shut out almost everything because you just don't know how many complex processes are in most of the things you eat unless you're eating them from, you know, from stuff that you grew yourself or bought it directly from the farmer who grew it and you trust what he or she says about how it was done. And even then, it's almost impossible, and I mean literally impossible, to move far enough away from industrial civilization that you can exclude its inputs to your physiology. You are breathing things, you are drinking things, you are eating things that are contaminated by these industrial-scale processes, and the problem is this is a hopeless puzzle. If you, you when you train somebody to troubleshoot a complex mechanism. The key rule is when you change something to see whether it fixes a problem, you change only one thing. So that way, if it doesn't change anything, you can put it back and you can change something else. One thing at a time allows you to detect, aha, that's the one. When I flip it, it fixes the problem. Therefore, the problem is in this pathway. We are constantly changing everything arbitrarily. Nobody's keeping track of it so that one year doesn't look like the next. You have no idea when some new solvent is being used that is dispersing into the air that you're breathing. You have no idea what has changed, so you can't track anything, which leads us. And you get the manufacturers proudly proclaiming, uh, that they no longer use the one thing that has been discovered unequivocally to, uh, you know, be bad for you. And so, you know, you 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 have things like it's BPA free. That's fantastic. What about the other eighty nine ingredients, other eighty nine types of plastics that no one has yet thought to study? Right. BPA free, good, good start, but not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. Yeah. And so, anyway, we are all hopelessly interfered with. Our bodies are still given the level of disruption, amazing at correcting for it, but not nearly good enough to really to really uh, remove the consequences. And so the point is we have this almost uh, religious devotion to the idea that something is wrong, that's true, and that therefore the idea is to go to the expert, the doctor, and say, what do I need? And the doctor has a checklist of, okay, here's some symptoms. That means you need pill X. What are the chances pill X is going to make you better off net long term? Yeah. Pretty low, actually, because it's not easy for a doctor who has a very crude understanding of the body because nobody on earth has a really good understanding of it. You know, a doctor is very unlikely to be able to prescribe some molecule or compound or set of molecules that is going to actually correct for a problem without causing a diffuse set of other problems that are greater than the one that they cured. And that's not the doctor's fault. It's the doctor's fault that the doctor doesn't know that. Yeah. The doctor actually has faith in the same system and believes and that the, the pharmacopoeia is something that surely contains a solution to every problem. Yeah. I think I, I think I trailed off or got distracted by it. I invoked fever as the question does. Um, so let's just go back to that a moment before we go to the other questions. Um, fever can be deadly, of course. 
um, fever can become a runaway process um, through non-hypernovel uh, means. So I like malarial fever um, can can kill you, can cook your brain um, effectively, uh, and and there are many other examples as well. Um, most fever, though, is not pathological. Most fever is actually an adaptive response to uh, some infection. Uh, and your body, uh, which has a, you know, at you as both a homeotherm and an endotherm, have a pretty narrow set point uh, within which your body and its enzymes operate max, uh, most, most effectively. And your body can elevate its temperature uh, above that optimal set point and do you not that much harm and perhaps no harm at all if it's a low enough fever for a short enough amount of time, but thus take your body out of, um, out of the temperature within which the pathogen can itself survive. So fever is not only not something that you should just look for a pharmaceutical solution to get rid of necessarily, um, because a pharmaceutical intervention is unnecessary, it may actually be making you sicker long-term because uh, in non- uh, extreme versions of fever, fever is usually actually adaptive. Uh, and so letting your body have fever and allowing yourself to have the discomfort associated with that um, is more likely uh, to allow your body without any sort of exogenous intervention at all actually deal with the pathogen itself. So a couple things. One, the fact that fevers are of an arbitrary degree is a feature, not a bug. Right. If you went to a particular higher set point, then a pathogen could adapt to that set point. But the fact that your fever will be different than your last fever uh, creates a puzzle that the pathogen can't solve. And the whole spiking thing is probably also um, an adaptive response. Like, okay, we like the body. The body knows. The body is not conscious in this way, right? Like, with this sort of evolutionary shorthand, um, <clears throat> the pathogen cannot survive a 105 degree fever, but then neither can you for very long. Um, but spiking to 104, 105 uh, for a very brief moment uh, may cook the pathogen without cooking you. Yeah, um, it at least throws it a a, a curveball. Yeah. Um, other thing I wanted to say was there's a general problem. Um, Steve Patterson, who we mentioned in the main podcast, talks about one of the things that contributes to the dark age is a chronic underestimate, uh, underestimate of the complexity of systems. That people imagine they understand more than they do. They understand something true, but it's not, they, they don't appreciate how much they don't yet know. Yeah. One of the places that we in civilization keep making the same mistake with respect to medicine is process X is an adaptive response to pathology Y. There is a phase at which the interaction with the pathogen or the disruption of the system makes the process pathological in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Right. And because we see cases in which somebody dies of a fever, our sense is fever bad. Rather than fever good, 99% of the time, and you have to watch each fever and make sure it hasn't kicked over into this other phase. And we have some wonderful tools if it has, yep. but it's probably not what you want to go to. And I just wanted to point out the uh, Umberto Maduri podcast. We did some nice sorting of this hmm. with respect to inflammation, because I, as a biologist, as an evolutionary biologist, have questions about this. I, I know that inflammation can't be what I've been led to believe. Inflammation, bad. 
I know it's part of an adaptive response. On the other hand, treating inflammation seems to be a key mechanism for saving people who have uh, uh, ARDS, which was the, the core pathology that Maduri was studying, acute respiratory distress. And so the question is, well, what's going on? Yeah. Is this adaptive um, inflammation run amok? What is it? And anyway, we don't know the answer to the question, but it is clear. But there's a distinction too. I mean, I, I have not listened yet um, to, but it's, there's a dis, dis, mm, it's a difference between uh, a condition that occurs and then goes away and one that becomes chronic. And so we see this across, you know, we see this across pathologies and conditions. You know, and I remember doing research as an undergrad uh, into, you know, the chronic stress response where, you know, the stress response and the spiking of things like corticosteroids and such is absolutely adaptive and not when you're bathing in cortisol all the time. Right. No longer adaptive at all. So the question in this case, one of the things that pulls you out of the ability to adaptively compensate for everything is the countervailing interests of the pathogen. Mm. And so the question that I asked Umberto and uh, Paul Merrick was, is what's going on that the pathogen... So you have, an, uh, you have an inflammatory response, which is the way the body recruits the immune cells that help fend off an infection. So if you have a respiratory infection, the inflammation is actually the dilation of the vessels and the other processes that cause the immune cells to get recruited, which of course makes your lungs kind of fill up with goo. Mm -hmm. It's not good for you, but the point is it's, it's, it's the complexity of having the army recruited to, to fend off the pathogen. But there's a point at which you may be so debilitated uh, that the pathogen, instead of having an interest in preserving you, has an interest in escaping you before you die. Mm -hmm. And it may be that this inflammation is something that the, the pathogen is triggering an overreaction because at that point it's in the interest of the pathogen to do this. So anyway, that's, that's a speculative model. But in general, we ought to be looking at adaptive processes where we think of them in those few cases where they turn maladaptive and dangerous and start to mistake that as the fundamental nature of the process. Mm. Um, you know, so the swelling of a broken limb, for example, right. Is the swelling of a broken limb really just an error that your doctor needs to correct? It's a cast. Yeah. It's a cast, um, is, is the, the basic logic. Yeah. No, but instead like, oh, let's get that swelling down so we can put an immobile and unchanging cast on you. Mm. Well, if you know, is is the is the bone out of alignment? Then that needs to be fixed. Is it gonna, you know, is it gonna set broken? Is it gonna set rather crooked? Uh, then let's fix that because we can. Um, but if it's if it's straight in there, even if you decide maybe a cast is is the best thing to do later on, give it give give your body the time um, to uh, to allow its own built-in cast uh, to to. Uh, I want to say melt away to to, to dwindle, uh, and then and then see what's going on. Yeah, and it can it's an, it's non it's continuous. It's continuous. You, your body. Can you can free always the... do the intervention. You you know the the medical intervention later with yep. regard to a cast. So, I guess what I would like to see is medical wisdom, and the wisdom involves when do you have a precise enough tool and know enough about the process with which you are interfering to have a good chance of making things better, mm -hmm. right? In the case of a limb that is misaligned because you broke it, yeah. the body knows what to do. It doesn't know perfectly what to do. Well, and it and doesn't have all the tools it needs. 
that, it, that, it may, it but that's may, what I mean. Yeah, it, it, may knows, have... it knows what to do in light of a world in which you don't have technology. In the world that you have technology, you may be able to do better. That's a case where you may know enough and you may have good enough tools to realign the thing and get more use. On the other hand, the body may have prioritized saving your life yes. from this broken limb yeah. and being willing to have it be... You'll be deformed forever deformed. after. Right. Yep. So that's a case in which it's very likely we have the tools and we know enough. But the we have the tools and, and we, we... We write about one of these stories in our book, actually, when, when Zach, our producer, was five... Um, and he broke his, um, I guess it was his radius, right? Um, his, his right, right, left forearm. I don't remember which one it was. Yeah. Left, left forearm, uh, and broke the head off of it. Uh, and, uh, without intervention, uh, that bone would not have continued to grow. And, uh, and so, you know, he ended up with pins in his arm to align the head with the bone. And then he had to go back, you know, back in for another surgery after some six weeks ish uh, to have the pins taken out. And, uh, other than a scar from the surgery, um, you know, every, everything grew just fine and there was no disability that resulted. Uh, whereas absent the surgical and other medical interventions, then there would have been, and this was an, you know, absolute positive. Yep. Zach is so, going to add something here. Oh, I was just going to suggest that I still would like to reap the benefits of identifying as disabled from that. <laughs> well, not, well, not actually being disabled. Yeah, that. no, that's a, that's a, that's a remarkable scar. So yeah, you can claim lots of things. Yeah. But <laughs> what I would like is just a recognition that you shouldn't press go on a fix until you have a precise enough tool and sufficient knowledge. And we are very rarely there. And it is exactly the problem of the biology textbook being as encyclopedic and knowing in its tone as the chemistry textbook, yeah. where medicine doesn't like acknowledging that it doesn't know, that the body knows better. So it's, it's in a kind of chronically interventionist mode. And it does, you know, iatrogenic harm is an absolutely dominant pathology for modern people. And it kills a huge number of, of folks. So That's right. wising up is inter, intervene less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, let's go on to our first question at darkhorsesubmissions.com. How do we in a society and legal framework properly manage the existence of dangerous cults that, for the most part, fall within the confines of the law? Could one's innate ability to influence others through language be comparable to the ability to influence others through violence? There's, there's a lot here. There's a lot of directions we could take. Um, one of the things that occurs to me here, um, which is I'm a doubt on the mind of the person asking the question, um, is something that I've talked about, um, I've written about extensively and we've talked about here, which is the um, different ways that men and women typically uh, deal with conflict um, and the different ways um, that stereotypically masculine versus stereotypically feminine approaches uh, to interaction and conflict can go, if you will, toxic. So as much as the term toxic masculinity is um, you know, a blight upon the earth at some level because of how it's been overused, if we accept um, that there are awesome models of masculinity out there and there are awesome models of femininity, do they sometimes go rogue and become toxic? Yes. Uh, so um, with that as, as background, um, 
toxic forms of masculinity, um, because of what masculinity is more likely to look like, is going to tend to be more direct, more physical, more confrontational, uh, and, um, and public. And public. And so when things go toxic, um, it will often be violent, and it will often be there also public, and it's relatively easy to write laws for and to find the perpetrators of said um, people engaging in toxic masculinity. When femininity, uh, when stereotypical modes of being feminine um, uh, go rogue, well, the, the when, when they don't go rogue, they're less likely to be direct physical public, right? They're more likely to be using language, using social means uh, to affect what people think, using things like you know, whisper campaigns, gossip, this sort of thing. And so the toxic forms of femininity will be more of the same, will be therefore more cryptic, and, uh, and being more cryptic will be, and, and also being less likely to incur physical damage, will be less likely to be covered by the law. And so what you will likely see is that toxic forms of femininity, unlike toxic forms of masculinity, are much more likely to be extra legal, um, are much less likely to actually um, um, have anything and any sort of law that is going to stop it from happening. And that is where things like um, cults often come in. They're using sort of um, more traditionally uh, female ways of achieving things in the world, um, but, you know, slash that through with a toxic element and you've got something that is um, very dangerous indeed. Even though cults are almost always led by men. Well, I did, as Evergreen was blowing up, as you know, I did some, I did a, a bit of research that I never finished, so I never put out into the world, but I started looking through um, lists of cults that were, where it was published, where the members were published, which is, of course, a subset of cults, but um, my hypothesis going in was, yes, we know that cults tend to be led by men, but I think the majority of cult members are going to be women, and my early analysis bore that out. I think I, I actually just this week ran into more evidence that suggests exactly that pattern. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to take a different Yeah, no, that's here. not, that's not, I think, what the question asker had in mind at all, but that's sort of where, where my brain went. To a large extent, and in fact, this trades on some of the same principles that we've been talking about uh, with other topics here. The vulnerability to cults is in large measure a result of the fact that people have not been given a system for thinking about how to interact in the world that actually works. If you were wildly happy with your life, if the stuff that you had been taught as a child was the stuff that actually got you by and told you how to prioritize things and all of that, if it, if it worked, then when somebody came up to you with a sales pitch for some other way, radically different way of thinking about stuff or interacting with people, you would be skeptical. And it is the fact that everybody is starved for a system that works yes. by virtue of the hyper novelty that we are all exposed to yes. that leaves people vulnerable for anybody who seems to have some answer of how else they might go about their life to get rid of all of the paradoxes that can't be resolved and the puzzles that you can't escape and all of this. So that's the problem. In light of that problem, A, we do need something that works, some way of approaching things that simplifies the puzzle enough that people can stop harming themselves 
on an absolutely regular basis. Absent that, cults are a symptom. This is what people who are adrift and have been starved of a useful approach to their own culture fall into. But the idea of stamping out cults in some way doesn't make sense. It's not going to work. And for one thing, you absolutely are not going to know the difference between some cult and some other thing that sounds cult-like but is actually a reasonable attempt to get things under control. So people have, people have experimented with all kinds of stuff, and the right way of being is going to sound like a cult at first. In fact, it may even be one. So how do you deal with that problem? You certainly don't deal with it by defining a category cult and figuring out how can we possibly stamp this out. You might deal with it by trying to educate people as to what cults typically look like, what they sound like, why they're appealing, why mm -hmm. people sign up for this stuff, and what happens to them. And then you might say, you never know. You might find somebody who has a way of viewing the world that is superior, but the chances are low, so you need to be on high alert for the possibility that what you're dealing with is actually parasitic. And then you're going to face the same problem the rest of us do, which is it's hard to know what something that's radically different and is true actually sounds like until it's proven itself. So anyway, I don't, th I don't think focusing on the problem of cults is the issue because cults aren't the issue to begin with. It's the, it's the starvation for a rational approach to life that is opening people to this particular mode of parasitism. Making them susceptible. Yeah. Very good. Next question. Uh, comment. Um, I'm out here today representing those who identify as dead. Will you sign this petition supporting death-affirming care for minors, or are you some kind of bigot? That's a tough one. Yeah, it's so hard. Yeah. So hard when you put it that way. Yeah. Pretty good way of putting it. Yeah, it's, it's very effective. Very good. Very good. Um, Unity 2024. Kennedy President Ramaswamy VP question mark. Um, you yeah they meet the three characteristics I think. I do too. Um, there's a question. I mean, look, there's one question. How do we get people who don't suck into an office with enough power to do something useful and then protect them? So that's a good pairing. I like it. Yeah. Trying to escape the party modality that is so toxic necessary. So yeah, it's a good idea. It's not the only idea. Yeah. Um, my wife and I recently welcomed our first child. Congratulations. Uh, the question asker continues, thank you for your input on natal Tdap vaccine. What are your thoughts on gentle versus cried out parenting in infancy? Love the show and appreciate you both immensely. Um, We actually, we have um, a friend, a couple friends who just had a baby and another um, uh, who, another couple who are due um, soon. So I'm thinking about this again. And um, with the opening caveat that um, babies are highly variable and some babies really are uncomfortable for some reason and are fussy and colic is real and and um and um there are some babies for whom there really seems to be almost nothing that you can do and they will outgrow it but it will be 
apparently uh, a hard a hard few months or I don't even know how long colic often lasts, but I think it's, it, it, it is finite. <laughs> you, you don't end up with adults wandering around screaming all the time, except maybe in Portland, but <laughs> it's, that's a different etio- uh, 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 etiology. Yeah. yeah. Um, Adult <clears throat> onset colic, I think is an unfortunately <laughs> useful description of a great deal of what we saw, especially in Portland, but not just there. Uh, Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's, hmm, we should do a show on that. Um, that said, mostly, most babies uh, should not um, find themselves crying a lot. And so, um, mostly when babies cry, uh, they are reacting to something real in their environment or what would have been a real threat in an ancestral environment. And one obvious threat to a newborn, which you now know is utterly helpless uh, in anything like an ancestral environment, is being put down alone. Right? There is absolutely no way that um, your baby, who to a would-be predator just looks like a delicious helpless morsel, um, should feel safe um, if they are out of touch with you, literally out of touch with you. And so the modern tendency um, to have babies sleep alone, to have babies um, be be put down in playpens or whatever alone without any any human touch, uh, is likely to trigger a fear or anxiety or both response in babies. And um, the idea that you should um, teach the baby that their fear and anxiety in this regard is something that they need to. Um, learn to appease themselves, I think is very wrongheaded. Um, because you will, as loving parents, um, provide an environment wherein your child can, with time, come to see that the world is a safe place and that there's always safe harbor back with their parents. Um, and then they can start uh, you know, exploring a little farther, a little farther, a little farther until they are finally able to launch and will always have safe harbor back with their parents but don't need to come back at any point. A newborn is not that. A newborn has, there is no reason that a baby should be learning um, that they can do just fine without their parents because they can't, because they can't. So um, the idea that was propagated in the, I don't even know when it started, but um, that, you know, co-sleeping is dangerous for your baby. I would say it's exactly the opposite. Having your baby sleep alone is dangerous. It's bad for your baby. Uh, and um, it's going to teach the baby all sorts of ideas um, about the world uh, that will be hard to undo. So uh, basically, um, if you can, and work to make it possible if it is all possible within the confines of, of your life, um, be in physical contact with your baby most of the time. Some, someone, some human being should be in physical contact with, the, with, with, a, with a newborn for some number of months, most of the time, uh, be that wearing the baby or sleeping next to the baby, um, or preferably some combination of the two. And if you do that, you will find that the baby, again, unless um, he or she is one of the relatively rare children who is, you know, who is just very uncomfortable and has to work through something anatomically or physiologically and, and will get through it and is colicky or whatever, you will find, I think, that the baby um, doesn't tend to cry very much. And so you are not in, you are not put in the position of having to decide, do I let, do I let the baby cry it out? Or do I, um, do I, I tend to him? And I don't think tending is inherently, let me see, the word was um, gentle versus cry it out. 
when you're talking about newborns, gentle is the only way to go. It's a newborn. They're, they're born. They're born too early. They're born too early because if um, human, if female human hips were any wider, we wouldn't be able to walk very well. And so you've basically got someone who is still cooking, uh, but on the outside now. Um, this is not a being who should be left alone. So there, I think we have to sort out the colic issue or whatever it is right, it's a, before we get to the other thing, which is why you started there. Yeah. Colic is about something. And I don't think we know what it's about. It's And it's multiple things. It's not going to be a single thing. It's not going to be one thing. Yeah. And it is going to pollute the right answer to this question, which is otherwise very easy. And I'm going to argue that the central problem here is books, unfortunately. <laughs> You think I'm kidding. I don't think you're kidding. I just think you're really predictable. Yeah, well, no, but here's the thing. You have generations of parents who read experts it's, on the but, subject. But it, the problem is experts. The problem is authorities. The problem isn't books. No, it's books. Because, because, but, because most parents are getting this stuff from their doctor who comes in with the white coat and says, you, know, you need to do this. The bottom of that crap. Is some book in which somebody who says some really compelling shit. I mean, look, used to be you're supposed to restrain yourself and not love your children too much because they could become tremendously dependent. You will damage them if you show them how much you love them. So you have to steal yourself, right? This was the Dr. Spock mentality. And you know, Dr. Spock did exist outside of books. He wrote books, they affected Dr. <laughs> You think? I mean, all right. <laughs> Heather can have her own opinion in which books are not central here, but the way, the, the degree yes, to I which can. books can take the dumb idea in some idiot's head and propagate it through an entire generation is not small. The, the thing that makes books powerful in a good way makes them powerful in a bad way. And because our society has broken the process by which you learn how to parent your children, it has broken the process in which you are surrounded by people who have had children, done it, and know how to do it, and show you by isolating you in something new called a nuclear family. That process has left parents in this nuclear family who are faced with their first children and have very little experience uh, looking for advice. And where are you going to find it? You're going to find it in books. And which books are you going to get? You're going to get the books that people have popularly concluded are the right ones to dispense the wisdom, and they're full of crap. So here's my point. There is a substitute for books. Unfortunately, we broke the main part which is the training of older people who've been through this, who you've been around your entire life, who show you. And we then broke the secondary apparatus. My point is going to be, if you take colic out, and colic is definitely going to be the result of novel phenomena disrupting your child's normal development, and frankly, given what I've now read about people whose children had their development disrupted by vaccines and given the near ubiquity of the vaccines, I do wonder if that's not, a, it's at least a potential culprit it. here. Yep. Um, but here's what I'm going to argue. In lieu of books, in conjunction with lots of aunts and uncles and grandmothers and all of that who are supposed to be around you and correcting you when you do something dumb and showing you how to do something right, all of that. And in conjunction with that, your child's crying is 
a evolutionarily refined mechanism to answer this very question. Right? Again, you have to take out the crying that isn't the result of something normal. You have to take out the novel crying. And then the point is, what your child can tolerate with respect to you stepping away from them is something that you are alerted to by their crying and the fact that you are programmed to hear that crying in a way that you can't ignore it, which is why the book tells you, let them cry. The book is trying to liberate you so that you can stop doing right by your kid. And there is a huge market for people who are drained by the way society puts them in charge of a child that they do not have enough labor to manage. And they want someone to tell them, oh, not only is it okay for you just to let the child cry, but that's your obligation, right? That market is why that book exists. And it's full of crap from some expert who doesn't know dick about anything. And you have to ignore this stuff. The fact that your child is crying and that you find it hard to ignore, that's evolution telling you the answer to this question. That's parental love. Yeah. The part where you find it hard to ignore your baby crying, that's parental love. Yeah. And you shouldn't override parental love. Now, the part B part of this answer, and I don't remember exactly how you phrased the question, but this answer changes radically with the age of the child. A child will become manipulative, and they will use the fact that you are yeah, wired to... This is to... infancy. So in infancy, this is the answer. Mm -hmm. As the child grows up, the necessity that they learn to tough it out with respect to things is very, very real. And so this is a circuit that has to kick in at some point where you have to be able to ignore your child's crying for their, their own benefit. Yeah. And, and we, you know, there, everyone has seen examples of bad parenting uh, in public with children who clearly have never been told no or you can't do that, or you can't have that, or that's not for you to do. Yeah. And the other thing, the final piece of what I want to add here is that the child is learning through many different mechanisms. One of those mechanisms is that they are picking up your emotional state. You cannot help but give cues to it, and they are picking it up, and they are learning how to feel about things. And the to the extent that a child is going to become comfortable and well-adjusted in the world, that is in part going to be because your sense about the world is one in which you have some confidence about this will be okay. It's not something as your child starts to panic. If the, if the parent panics, then the point is the child has a sense, oh, this really is that bad. Whereas if the parent is confident and says, no, here's how we're going to deal with that, then the child will pick that up too. And so you're, you're, you're shooting, I, I believe there is something very important to the idea of attachment. I don't know that that's the best way to describe it, but there's something very important to how securely your child feels attached to you. If they feel insecure, that will, that will set them up for a lifetime of such attachments. If they feel secure, it will do the same thing in the other direction. So they have to feel secure and they should, if you as an adult can figure out how to manage challenges your child will pick that up from you. If you can't manage challenges, they'll pick that up from you. So try to get yourself under control. And if you're under control, try to convey these things to the kid. The child is wired to learn and you are wired to respond to them in a way that is useful. And that is the guide. And to the extent that you're going to listen to anything from anybody that sounds like an expert telling you, here's the way it is. Be very careful that that expert is at least consistent with the basic underlying evolutionary logic. And if they don't know that evolutionary logic, uh, buyer beware. Very good. You both have often discussed the harms of bots and anonymous accounts in regards to social media. 
What are your thoughts on non-anonymous accounts with effectively anonymous managers, i.e. POTUS and other institutions? Uh, I dislike it entirely. Yeah. And I think the, the... It's like hiding in plain sight because that, that framing is obvious in retrospect, but I hadn't thought to think of it in those terms. Yeah. And it, it here's the basic thing. The system of reciprocity that human beings almost uniquely have, something called indirect reciprocity, in which we take care of each other as a pool of people where I put into the pool and I take out of the pool, but I don't necessarily get paid back by the same person who uh, benefited from my contribution to it. That system is mediated through reputation. And it has been for hundreds of thousands of years. Those reputations were easy to keep track of in small bands, even if your small band was connected to a, you know, a dozen other small bands. The number, total number of people whose reputations had to be monitored was small. And people were suspect of anyone who was outside of that group or you didn't know their reputation. That system has broken down first because society is so large that you can't track the reputations of people very well, if at all. And then it has broken down a second time over the ability to act in a way that is free of reputation. And this has all kinds of effects, some of which are less pernicious than others. I'll, I'll point to one. How funny is John Stewart? John Stewart is very funny, but he's not nearly as funny as we thought he was because he had a team of writers who spoke through him. Is there anything inherently wrong with that? Not really, right? A playwright could write a bunch of, you know, stuff drawn over a lifetime that a character appears to understand in the matter of an hour. It's nothing inherently wrong or dishonest about it. But the problem is, to the extent that we see a person on a screen being funny, and they're much funnier than we know anyone in our circle to be, we don't know how to evaluate that. Yeah. So this it, it sets expectations in the wrong place. It sets expectations in very much the wrong place. And the same thing is true when you have a public figure whose avatar on social media appears to be that public figure, but what you have is a team of people being very careful to put out only things of this nature or to avoid putting out things of that nature or whatever. So these things are all dangers. How big a danger? You know, the anonymous account can be a very powerful force for good. Sometimes it is. What is the sum total of the cost we pay for anonymous accounts who can do terrible things and pay no reputational cost? That cost is huge. And what do we do about it? There are various intermediate kinds of solutions like uh, pseudo-anonymous circumstances where you have the ability to have only one account. It can be anonymous from the point of view of people you're interacting with, but it carries the reputation of whatever has happened under its name and it, you can't make a new account. So there are ways to mitigate this, but this is a very serious problem. It is a problem of hypernovelty that arises because technology amplifies the hazard of a large anonymous society and that hazard has to do with the fact that people get away with stuff without the reputation taking a hit and it would be hard to overrate the danger good um okay so we only have 15 more minutes let's try to get through a, a few more questions here um i have an msn degree which i think is a um, master's in nursing i i believe um 
and was taught to follow the Johns Hopkins Research Evidence Appraisal Tool in evaluating research quality. How do you recommend evaluating studies? Um, I didn't know, but I'm not surprised to hear that there is a Johns Hopkins Research Evidence Appraisal Tool. I think um, that there's one way in which it makes sense that such a tool would exist when there's so much research out there and so many people who are being expected uh, to review research uh, when mostly what they're actually doing is working in a clinical setting, um, it can potentially save time. Uh, that said, any tool will be gamed. And if that, if that tool or three tools like it are the ones that are being used primarily by people uh, to assess the legitimacy uh, uh, of particular research, well, bad research will specifically evolve to learn how to, um, how to game those tools. So um, I think any static metric is a danger. Uh, that said, how do you how do you evaluate studies uh, if you you know if if the evaluation of studies is like a, a side thing for you and you don't have that much experience doing so? It is something that I used to, you know not mostly within the medical literature, but it's something that I worked with students on almost every quarter that I taught at Evergreen. Uh, it felt important to me to to teach them how to review the primary literature and. Um, in, you know, over in the fields, mostly what they were, that they were reviewing for me, um, there were some things that you can always start by looking at before you even get into the research itself, which used to be better, um, metrics, things like what journal is it in, um, who, you know, what, who, who's the lead author, what lab are they coming out of? Do they have a history of work in this, in this area? Um, are they the only people working in this area? Do they only ever uh, publish with these people? Is this maybe just you know one lab doing the same thing over and over and over again, in which case maybe it's good, maybe it's not, but it's probably not unique. Um, it's probably not novel. Um, the, the standards for how many authors are on a paper varies widely by field. In general, the proliferation of authors in research papers is a bad thing. It's bad for science. It's bad for, um, uh, I've lost the word, like uh, accountability uh, in terms of individual authors. I've actually had arguments with people on, you know, not even many author papers, like eight or 10 authors uh, where, you know, in some paper, I found something and knew one of the authors and said, what's going on here? And uh, he said to me, oh, I don't know. I didn't write that paragraph. Well, that's not how co-authored papers are supposed to work, is it? So I, I always read um, many authored papers with more skepticism uh, and looking, looking more acutely for more inconsistencies within the paper than I do for single or two or maybe even three authored papers. Uh, because there's a greater chance that this was cobbled together as a mosaic and not as an actual piece of research, uh, although it will be presented as such. In terms of the research itself, uh, you need you need experience. Um, one of the things that I always look for is, um, you know, first is evidence of hypothesis. Now, increasingly, people who never had a hypothesis at all cheat and claim they had a hypothesis before and write it into the abstract and the introduction as if they had a hypothesis all along. Sometimes you can tell, and sometimes you can't. Very often, the methods aren't a fit for the test that they claim to be doing. 
You have to have experience enough in the domain and begin to trust your instincts uh, well enough to be able to call that out when you see it. Uh, but uh, it is amazing how many research papers don't actually test the thing that they claim to be investigating. And yet the results are there saying that they did the test. Uh, but to know that you have to, you have to be willing to and sort of walk around your world all the time going, what would have to be true if? If X is true, then Y must be true. And how would I know if Y were true? Well, would Z demonstrate that? No, no, it would not in fact demonstrate that. How would I know? And really you have to get in the habit of doing that a lot before you can walk into research papers, which of course are gonna be filled both with uh, legitimately complex words and a lot of jargon that doesn't need to be there. And it's gonna be harder to assess than it will be when you're walking around your own world. That's a scattershot of a lot of different kinds of answers, which is still only a start. I know that I had um, pretty good success when working with undergraduates over the course of a quarter or two quarters or three quarters, even, who, even those who didn't have any prior experience with the scientific literature at all, uh, in um, revealing to them that they too could, and actually it was required that they do, uh, assess the primary literature directly. So I would say... This is a very difficult, a difficult job to do well. What Heather is saying is accurate and useful, though not complete, if you're working on something far from money. If you're anywhere near medicine, this is not doable. It cannot be done. And that is, I'm not claiming that that's a, a solvable problem. I'm not claiming that there's some way to navigate well in the absence of the ability to do this. But I am telling you that even in principle, this can't be done because the degree to which moneyed influence has a capacity to shift what the literature says in a way that you can't detect it is far greater than the ability to ferret out what has actually taken place. But but it is part of what we have been doing here on Dark Horse for, well, for three plus years. But but the problem is it's not a method that you can convey because what we're doing is we're actually taking biological evolutionary knowledge, which builds a model, and then we are going into the literature and we're saying, this is worth paying attention to because it is consistent enough with the model that it may very well be that what it adds is actually meaningful. Or this but is so... Also, I mean, I, I'm more than you, but I've also been assessing empirical research. Right. I'm not talking... Yes, you can do it with empirical research to the extent that you have a deep model of how the body functions and you can compare it and you can say, actually, this is... Pondized. That throws an error. That throws an error. Actually, too many errors, too early in the paper. No. Right. And so yep. what I would say, as this sounds like you're in nursing, is that the underrated value in medicine for both doctors and nurses is how well what you are being told jibes with clinical experience. Mm -hmm. To the extent that you are being told that your COVID patients should not be given steroids, even though they are in acute respiratory distress, that may not comport with what you've been seeing with patients who have this very condition. And what you do do you violate the standard of care with respect to COVID? And do you prescribe steroids to a person? You've been told, don't prescribe steroids. It's dangerous to COVID patients. That's a tough one. 
I don't know. I don't know how you wrestle with the legal implications and the the way your colleagues will look at you as if you're, uh, you know, in some sort of a, a, a murderous delusion. But the fact is, it turned out in the end that, of course, the instinct every doctor would have had, which is to apply steroids to a person in acute respiratory distress who had COVID, it's the obvious thing to do for them. And the official guidance was bullshit. And now we've finally gotten around to recognizing that the official guidance was bullshit. But anyway, the point is, clinically speaking, doctors and nurses get smarter over time. And it's not a risk-free process, but it's way less risky than listening to a literature that is polluted by an industry that actually profits from sick people. So with regard to the question that's actually asked, how do you recommend evaluating studies? Do not underwrite your own clinical experience. Yep. Uh, and <clears throat> use yours and the clinical experience of those in your community whom you trust uh, as a kind of a brain trust and use that as a, at least a first pass and maybe a second, third, and fourth pass on any studies that you would like to or are being asked to assess. And the last thing I would say is use the revelations of Martin Neal and Norman Fenton where they showed that a cheap trick was being used to create the impression of efficacy for uh, inoculations that were not efficacious, when you see that that is study after study that swears that the efficacy is high, and yet you discover that that was actually a statistical artifact created by the way they categorized people, that tells you how big an error can hide in plain sight without anybody calling it out for years. That tells you. And so when you spot something that doesn't comport with your clinical experience, don't talk yourself out of noticing because it can't possibly be right. that the literature is wrong because it can be wrong about anything. Yep. Okay, let's try to get through um, a few more very quickly. Yep. Right, so we're going to have to go here soon. Um, I do not have an opinion on this one. What is your opinion on natokinase-based spike-clearing treatments? I never hear details like how long from spike exposure you can be or how long you need to take it. I have not looked into this. Yeah, I really couldn't say. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, Fluvax can make HIV V4 test false positive. I don't know what HIV V4 is. You know what the V4 is doing there? Mm -mm. Okay. Um, Fluvax can make HIV V4 test false positive. Is that related to an autoimmune allergy response? Uh, maybe, yeah, it could be maybe? there's enough enough yeah. mechanism in there, but boy, don't know again. I don't know, and I don't know, yeah. presumably, well, I don't want to say presumably somebody has looked into it and figured it out because who knows, but yeah, just go to the literature, be fine, <laughs> um, sorry, don't know, um but but maybe, um related to that, if a leaky ish, if a leaky vaccine is keeping covid going through mutations, are we also keeping the flu around due to the annual flu shot? COVID maybe seems like it's a lineage, um, maybe which was stopped somewhere and moved into a lab and then we have different variants. So maybe it's becoming um, more lineages, but um, the flu is more like a lot of different things. And the flu vaccine is, um, you know, each year is sort of 
created to match what is expected to be the most dominant of the flu variants that particular year. So it's not it's not exactly analogous in that way, but I still find the potential um, similarity plausible. So what I would argue is I think we know enough in the case of influenza to know that it is not the flu vaccine that is keeping it around because it was doing a good job of keeping itself around before there were any vaccines. Presumably, again, because it was not, it, the flu isn't the flu. The flu is lots of different viruses. Well, yes, this is a component, but it's also a question. If this were ecology, you might call this metapopulation or uh, rescue effect. Those are, that's a time and a space version of the same idea where flu continues into the next round of the game anytime it can find some place to persist. But in the opposite direction. Right? Rescue effect is time, metapopulation is space. Correct. Yeah. Um, but the point is flu is capable of hiding out in birds, for example. It can, it can hide out in lots of places. It can hide out in a population of people. There are... There is a more Lego-like um, set, a library of components, which is why we classify flus in the way they do. But the basic point mm -hmm. is flu has a durable modality for persisting through time. I'm not saying that annual flu vaccination isn't making things worse. I don't know that it's making things worse, but it's plausible that it is. But it isn't keeping it around. I don't think it's keeping COVID around anymore either. I think there's a fair chance that if we had decided that we actually as a globe wanted to drive COVID to extinction and we had gotten on the puzzle early and we had applied all of our best tools and our clearest scientific thinking, I think there's a strong possibility we could have driven it to extinction early on. Now that it is endemic, I don't think it's the vaccines that are continuing to cause it to persist. They are just simply perturbing it in a now persistent mode. Um, so anyway, ho hopefully that answers answers the question. Okay, three more. Uh, I'm sorry, we're going to miss a few this week. Um, have you seen this thread about the FDA admitting UB court doctors have the right to prescription ivermectin off-label for COVID? It's a chief nerd uh, link that I have not clicked through on because I can't click through on this on this thing. yeah have you seen this i am I've not seen barely it. aware of it it doesn't surprise me at all the degree to which they are going to they're going to retcon a new understanding of the world in which everybody was always free to prescribe ivermectin which is clearly not true they interfered and this is maybe one of the key indicators that the ivermectin uh, public narrative was insane was that if ivermectin really didn't work why were they having such trouble convincing doctors of that. And if they weren't having trouble convincing doctors, why did they go to the unusual step of interfering at the pharmacy? Right. That's what? There was something on screen. Um, oh. So anyway, the, the idea that they interrupted a doctor's ability to prescribe at the pharmacy, that they got the pharmacist to override a doctor's prescription tells you that this was not a normal story. And the well, fact and that's that part of why they, I mean, they had to convince people that it was dangerous. Right. And so they made it hard to get. They made it hard to get that they pretended that we were all going to the feed store to get horse paste. Um, they pretended that it was dangerous. And they interrupted the ability of your doctor to say, yeah, don't listen to those people. I'm going to prescribe it for you, which they couldn't do with hydroxychloroquine because it had another use in the U.S. 
for lupus. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't get rid of hydroxychloroquine. Doctors were still able to prescribe it that way. But yeah, the idea that they're retconning this, they uh, these are shameless people that we are dealing with. Yeah. Um, so two more, unfortunately, they could both be long, but let's uh, let's be quick about it. Please explain the evolution of crying. Why does emotion produce a waterfall out of the face? Um, I have a long-standing, if crude, hypothesis here, which is that for a child who is experiencing distress, the danger that that distress is induced by something in the eye that they have no capacity to get out of the eye in some rational way, can't manage to convey to their parent exactly why they are so disturbed, that it's cheap to flush the eye and that this has saved enough eyes that have gone on to increase the number of offspring that somebody left later in life or to prevent them from being eaten by a predator or whatever, that having that system on automatic when you're very young makes sense. And then once you have that system as, a, as part of a mode for conveying emotional distress, it then gets borrowed by uh, processes that continue it. Or tear ducts exist uh, to wash the eye. Often when your tear ducts are uh, activated to wash the eye, um, it serves as a signal to someone near you that they might maybe could help you. Not right. that you, not that you are trying to signal, but they can read that because they're another uh, cogent social being. Yeah. Um, and then that signal, which is already used um, to um, to communicate, um, can be used um, in this other way. Yeah. Or the way to say it is, it's not initially a signal. It's a cheap insurance against eye damage that would be. I, think I said that. That yeah. would be coupled with. Um, with severe emotional distress. And then once it happens, then it becomes a signal and that signal has a, a rich. Yeah, actually, I mean, I, I, I disagree. I, I, was, I, I don't think it has to be coupled with severe emotional distress at first. I don't think you inherently have severe emotional distress every time your tear ducts are, are triggered. In an infant, the fact of having something in their eye would cause severe emotional distress. Something is way off and then so the flush the eye when something is way off, cheap insurance, and then because the tear duct is a visible symbol, it becomes a signal that gets co-opted for other. I mean, we're saying the same thing. Yeah, I just I don't I I don't know about attributing severe emotional distress to babies crying, um, but I think that's a trivial piece of this. One more question, and then we're gonna go for the week. We'll be back in a week. Someone, this is from an academic, we learn later in the question here. Someone recently said to me that trans kids is just a manufactured panic. This from a fellow academic. I was dumbstruck. How to best respond to this? Um, and, you know, like all the questions that I've, I've read today, uh, this, could be, this could be an incredibly long answer. Um, I too am dumbstruck. I, I do think that part of how the trans activists, the trans ideology is making such fierce and dangerous and rapid inroads is that uh, much of it is somehow out of view of some large proportion of the country. Many people really seem to not know uh, what is happening. I just, just anecdotally, I was trying to buy shorts <clears throat> on Land's End uh, yesterday on, the, on their site. And uh, the top review for a pair of shorts that I did not end up buying um, was, my trans son 
Uh, I bought these for my... Thank you, Maddie. That is a very dangerous delivery person. <laughs> um, I think that's the appropriate response, actually, to my trans son. Um, this mom uh, posted a picture of this daughter of hers with um, fully developed breasts wearing these shorts. And the review said, it was the top review, said, I bought these for my trans son uh, to provide some support while not looking um, like the girl that he isn't. And it went on to have some other garbagey, it couldn't even follow it. And I sat looking at this picture of this poor, miserable looking, probably 13, 14 year old with large breasts for a 13 or 14 year old with a haircut that kind of looks like it could be on a boy, but it could have been on a girl too, wearing these sort of, you know, like exercise shorts and um, just looking miserable, just looking utterly miserable. And um, I thought no one who walks past that young person on the street is going to mistake that person for a boy because she's got large breasts. And um, girls who develop their breasts early do experience a lot of um, unwanted attention and they feel a lot of, um, some of them I think feel a lot of um, shame about their bodies and fear and don't know what's coming next and all. Um, but the epidemic of moms mostly who are um, acquiescing to the barbaric practice of letting young women pretend that they are boys and um, and this review was written a few years ago. I looked at this, I shared it with you. I said, probably this young woman doesn't have breasts anymore. Um, this is the way it's going. Um, I don't know how anyone is not seeing this, but we do know, and this is you know related to things we were talking about earlier, how even those who work hard not to be canalized in the media that we are exposed to are canalized. We are shown what we have already been shown. We are shown things that are already in line with what we already believe. And uh, I do feel certain that there are people who, um, because they only ever open things from the New York Times and NPR, whatever, um, are not being shown the barbarism. There's a lot more to say, but I think we have to go. But you just say something quickly. Yeah. Um, a, I just want to point out that even the fact of posting your child in a review for sure. shorts tells you that this is this is about the parent. This parent has prioritized their own needs to signal it's over abuse. their child's well-being. Yeah. But with respect to your, I think it was colleague who was apparently dismissive of the idea that there was even a problem. First of all, we've encountered this. Yeah. Um, Lots of times, uh, Jesse Single had a confrontation with me and uh, James Lindsay over disbelief over how certain words about diversity, equity, and inclusion spoken by the Biden administration suggested a, uh, a coming hellscape. But anyway, point is, you want to talk to your colleague and you want to say, look, let's figure out what we actually disagree on. Do you agree that if this was taking place with young people, if there was actually young people having expressed some sort of ambiguity about their sense of gender were being surgically altered in a way that couldn't be undone, are we agreed that you would be upset by that and that what you're saying is that you don't think it's happening and that if even if it was a tiny number of people, that tiny number of people would be something worth commenting on and preventing from happening? Because we can get the person that far 
then all you have to do is establish, oh, actually, there are a good many young people, and some of them have discovered their error and are now testifying about the, uh, the painful process of discovering that they were misled medically and that there's no going back, etc. So if you can just get them to agree that if it were happening, they'd be troubled, but they don't believe it's happening, then the job is easy because it is happening and it's not hard to show. This is, this is an excellent point, actually. Terrific. Um, all right. Well, on that incredibly non-upbeat note, uh, I'm going to send you off into August, which in the Pacific Northwest is perfect. Um, if you're having a crappy summer because the weather where you are is ridiculous, next summer consider the Pacific Northwest. Mm. It really could not be better. It really, it really is fabulous. Um, but also, you know, don't swarm our our our, our landscapes because uh, we have enough people already. Um, Some of them have adult onset colic. <laughs> it's true, adult onset colic. This is really good. Um, okay, uh, we'll be back same time next week um, with another live stream. And um, we look forward to, I guess, not us seeing you then. It's weird to say that we look forward to you seeing us then. So we look forward to being here then. How about that? Yes. Until then, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone. <laughs>